You're in the water loop. Hey, this is Travis with Waterloop. You've probably heard me talk about how much I like High Sierra showerheads for their incredible water efficiency, their solid metal construction, and because it's a small business based in the U.S., with owner David Malcolm having a commitment to water and energy conservation. While I hope you value my opinion, there are some pretty major endorsements you should listen to. High Sierra Showerheads were rated Best Showerhead by Popular Science and CNET, and Best Low Flow Showerhead by Wirecutter. If you go on Amazon, you'll see that High Sierra gets the highest ratings, four and a half to five stars, from all the satisfied customers. You can use promo code WATERLOOP for 20% off at HighSierraShowerheads.com. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop. Welcome to Waterloop. This is Travis. Going to be talking about Colorado and journalism and water out west. I have Heather Sackett. She is managing editor at Aspen Journalism and the editor and reporter of its Water Desk. Heather, thanks for coming on the podcast. Sure. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, Before we talk about Colorado and and water out west, I want to talk a little bit about Aspen journalism and just what it is and and what the water desk is, because I think entities like it are very important these days. But yeah, just talk about that for a minute. Sure. Um, So Aspen Journalism is a local nonprofit investigative news organization, and we are funded entirely by individual donors and foundations. Um, We don't get any money from advertising and we are online, um, but we partner with local newspapers and local radio stations to distribute our stories. Um, and so the way nonprofit works is once the stories are up on our website, aspenjournalism.org, anyone can republish them for free. Um, and so our model is very collaborative and we don't charge any of our partners for our content. It's, it's all free. Um, And so Aspen Journalism has two different desks, the Environment Desk and the Water Desk, which I run. And the Water Desk covers water issues in the Colorado River Basin and primarily in western Colorado. And um, to get even a little bit more specific in the Roaring Fork River Basin, um, which is the watershed from Aspen, where the headwaters are, um, all the way down valley to the confluence of the Roaring Fork with the Colorado River in Glenwood Springs. And so that's primarily the area that I cover. And uh, we also have freelancers in other river basins across western Colorado who cover stories for us. And then those stories are then published in their local newspapers. Um, And I should mention that our primary publishing partner is Swift Communications, which owns a bunch of small newspapers in several um, western Colorado towns. And many of these are resort towns uh, with tourism-based economies. So like Vail, Summit County, Steamboat Springs, um, Aspen and Glenwood Springs. And then we also partner with the water desk at the university of Colorado Boulder, and they provide us some, uh, some funding to do some of those freelance stories. Yeah. Fantastic. And so if there's a newspaper out there that wants to pick up one of these stories, you know, you called them partners, but this is content they can just take and use, uh, without a fee and, and run it. 
Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Uh, you know, unfortunately, we've seen what's happened to editorial departments, to newsrooms at, at mainstream publications over the past 5, 10, 15 years, right? Just the slashing of, of reporters. Um, and I guess given that that's happened, could you talk about the role of these kind of nonprofit news entities like Aspen Journalism, why they're so important? Because you do see these popping up around the country and kind of rising to prominence a little bit more. Sure. Uh, right. Yeah. Like as you mentioned by now, everybody's heard all of the bad news about local journalism, that papers are folding and sustaining major cuts by their hedge fund owners and laying off journalists and um, how there's now news deserts all over the country. Mm. And I think a lot of these problems have been exacerbated by the pandemic, unfortunately. Um, and so what we've been hearing over and over is that local journalism and especially local print journalism is a sinking ship. Um, but I would like to offer that only commercial profit driven local journalism is a sinking ship. And, um, over the last decade or so, as you mentioned, um, as legacy print media has continued to decline, the nonprofit news model has emerged as a way of restoring public interest, investigative mission driven journalism to its critical role in a democratic society. And there are now more than 200 nonprofit newsrooms across the US. Um, some examples that people might be familiar with are ProPublica. They often do collaborations with the New York Times, Chalkbeat, which covers education in several cities around the country, High Country News, which is a magazine um, about the West and it's based here in Colorado, uh, the Texas Tribune is also another big one people might have heard of. And the Salt Lake Tribune recently went nonprofit as well. So it's a it's a growing trend. It's um uh it's definitely sort of the bright spot in in an otherwise uh bleak news <laughs> e ecosystem. <laughs> yeah, and I've known a number of of former reporters at legacy outlets, like you said, who have, you know, lost their positions there and have transitioned over uh, to these nonprofit entities and are just doing important, but just quality reporting, right? They they mm -hmm. have the chops and the skills and are, are doing filling that critical void, like you said. Um, it's interesting to see also that some of these outlets are taking on kind of broader regional slash national issues, and then others are very hyper local focused. And there's clearly a need for, I think, both of those, both of those areas, and also on environment and water, you know, those environmental reporters were some of the first to go. And so this is this is all kind of filling, filling that big void, like you said. Right? Yes, definitely. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, Glad, glad to have you all out there for sure. Uh, and that's kind of how I stumbled upon uh, stumbled upon you all was uh, some of the stories that that caught my eye about water rights, uh, water rights in Colorado and in the West and all that. Um, for people that might not be familiar, could you kind of give a, a 101 level uh, on how water rights work in, in Colorado and the West in general? Sure. Um, so first of all, just a, a caveat. I'm I personally am only really familiar with water rights in Colorado. Okay. Um, and so I know they're slightly different and vary by state. Um, mm. But so in Colorado, um, first of all, we have to get in our time machine and go back <laughs> to about the 1880s when this area was first um, settled by white settlers, uh, many of whom were miners and farmers and ranchers. 
And so um, back in the 1880s, when you decided to, you wanted to plant some crops and irrigate them, because um, water doesn't just fall from the sky here, you have to actually take the water from the rivers and bring it through these surface diversions, through ditches, um, to your land, um, to water your plot of land and your crops. Um, and so all you had to do was just to use the water and then it's yours. Um, and so in water terms, it's called putting it to beneficial use. Mm. And, um, so if you're growing a crop with it, then it's getting put to beneficial use and you have the water. Um, and so to make that water right official and to get it legal protections, you then, you have to get it adjudicated by the state. So, um, after you've been start using the water and then you go to water court, the water court approves it and you get an adjudication date. And that date is very important because in Colorado, um, water rights are based, um, it's called first in time, first in right. Mm. So the older the water right, the more important it is, the more powerful it is. On some rivers, uh, just a very few old and very big water rights basically control what happens on the entire river. Um, water rights are a right to use a public resource. Water is a public resource. Um, but here it's, it's really treated as a private property right um, that comes with a monetary value. So the oldest water rights are also the most valuable water rights. And in Colorado, the oldest and most valuable water rights generally belong to agriculture um, because they were the first people to put that water to beneficial use under that definition. Mm, wow. It's incredibly, as some, an East Coaster myself, it's incredibly complex stuff, especially when I was reading some of the stories and you have different districts and different areas that manage certain kind of basins or certain rivers or certain withdrawals. And it's, uh, could you talk about that just generally then like the practical management or implementation or how, how this stuff is provided, mon you know, the monitoring too, like all that stuff. It's, it's amazing. Right. Yes, it is very complicated. Um, so there's uh, the Colorado Division of Water Resources. They are in charge of managing and monitoring all these water rights. It's called um, administration. So they like administer the river. Uh, Colorado's broken up into seven river basins. And um, each of those basins is further broken up into districts. Um, and I think there are like 78 water districts. Each district has their own water commissioner. Uh, some districts have more than one water commissioner. And so that's the person who goes out and inspects all of the measuring devices and the diversions, head gates, infrastructure. So they're kind of like the boots on the ground people. They know all the water users. They go around to their properties and they help administer the river and um, settle disputes between water users. Um, and most of these water commissioners have a ton of ground to cover. I just met with one in the Yampa River Basin, which is in northwest Colorado uh, near Steamboat Springs, who was responsible for monitoring something like 400 structures. Um, and wow. so they're, they're super busy. They might make it out to somebody's measuring device um, only once per season. And so in some cases, they're relying on the water rights holders themselves to keep diversion records of how much water they've been taking from the stream. Uh, and so they have these things called a partial flume that you stick in your ditch. And it's got like a little, um, you know, like a ruler sort of on the side that can tell the water commissioner how much, um, how many cubic feet per second they are diverting from the stream. Wow. Amazing stuff. Uh, you know, there's obviously been a lot of 
uh, drought uh, in the West over the past bunch of years, and we've got all these climate change impacts continuing. And I just imagine, and I've, I guess, seen in the news how drought has just uh, <laughs> exacerbated all the debates over water rights and what's going down the Colorado River. And um, I was wondering if you could talk about kind of the, the impact of drought on, on water rights, and especially also, I think, the Colorado River Compact, um, just how that all has, has influenced things recently. Sure. Um, so drought and uh, the Colorado River, Colorado River Compact are two sort of separate but related issues. Okay. But um, so first, uh, I would just uh, quibble with the semantics of that question. Uh Sorry, can that's you right. That? Not a worry. Okay, sorry. You can edit that right. Okay, <laughs> my editor's calling me, but we're gonna ignore him. Um, okay. <laughs> um, so, uh, so first of all, I would say that a lot of the current tensions and problems and issues that we're seeing on the Colorado River are really fueled by climate change. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, what we're seeing since about the year 2000 is um, it's really less of a drought and more of a long-term aridification of the Colorado River Basin um, as temperatures continue to rise. Uh, so I suppose it is a drought, but it's a drought fueled by climate change. So you're saying that it's it's more about long-term change in the in the climate of the area becoming more arid than it is just a a you know t- temporary. A decrease in the amount of rainfall that's coming. This is actually a like right. a, a, a big pivot. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so uh, there have been a lot of studies done by climate scientists at um, CSU in particular. And so what they found is um, there's not actually a ton of variability in um, in the amount of precipitation. Uh, what the bigger problem is the hotter temperatures. And so what happens is hmm. as um, soils are drier and, and warmer, more of that water that would otherwise make it to the river ends up being sucked up by plants and by the soils. And so um, it's just like the end result is that there's less water in the river um, because of these higher temperatures. And and now, and now with climate change, those temperatures are kind of here to stay. It's not like this is going to reverse uh, in the near future or anything like that. Right. Yeah. yeah. And and so um, one example of climate change impacting water rights on in Colorado is um, on the Yampa River, which is in northwestern Colorado. Um, and 2018 was a really dry, really hot year. And there was a call on the Yampa for the first time ever. Um, and so just a little explanation of what a call is, um, is so uh, when um, a call happens when there's a an older water rights user and they are not able to get their full amount from the stream. So it's hot, it's dry, and the flows just aren't there. And so they call up the um, Colorado Division of Water Resources and they say, hey, I'm entitled to get 10 CFS of water, but I'm only able to get eight because the stream is really low. And so their water commissioner will go out, take a look around, and then they can place a call on the river. And that means that all the water users that have junior rights, so uh, water rights with a date that is later, so essentially younger than theirs, they have to stop diverting so that this older, more senior water right can get their full amount. Um, And this type of thing happens all the time in other Colorado river basins, but it was the first time ever that it happened on the Yampa. Um, And so I think it was a real wake up call for a lot of people that, um, 
you know, like, hey, climate change is really uh, starting to affect us as well. Um, yeah, that's that's amazing. And then I imagine that there are some real tangible impacts to some of those junior water users that maybe can't properly irrigate crops or whatever their their use is for water, huh? Right. Yeah, absolutely. And in Colorado, um, an interesting thing is that uh, a lot of the junior water rights holders are actually municipalities. So um, it's the cities that are kind of like, uh oh, we have this problem. Um, agriculture has all the water and the cities are growing and they need the water. And so what you're seeing is this, um, in a lot of cases, there's a, a transfer of water from uh, rural agriculture to cities. Um, and that happens through a couple different different ways. But um, but yeah, it is, it is quite interesting how most of the junior water rights holders are, um, they date to like the early and mid 20th century, and they, they tend to be um, municipalities. Very interesting. Uh, obviously, they need to provide water to people for drinking and just household use. So uh, they've got to be feeling the pressure and looking for ways to push conservation and, and uh, other, other means there. Colorado River Compact then, since I conflated the two, um, you want to take that one on separately and, and what okay. that is and how that's impacted water rights? Sure. Um, so let's get in our time machine again and this time go back to 1922. Um, and that's when the, the Colorado River Compact was signed. It's basically a treaty between the upper basin states, which are Colorado, Wyoming, Utah, and New Mexico, and the lower basin states, which is California, Arizona, Nevada. Uh, and the part of the compact most relevant to this conversation is that it, um, it lays out this requirement for the upper basin to deliver a certain amount of water to the lower basin every year. And so this is like the ironclad law of the river um, where this water, the upper basin has to send it downstream and it's stored in Lake Powell, which is that giant reservoir on the border of Utah and Arizona, uh, where it's a very popular place for, to go boating. And if you've been following Western water news at all in the last two decades, you're probably familiar with those um, ubiquitous photos of what they call the bathtub ring in Lake Powell, which shows um, how water levels have been dropping since about the year 2000 um, because of this climate change fueled drought. Um, and so, you know, there have been good years during that period with lots of snow, um, but overall the levels are dropping. And um, so... Sorry, I lost it. No, I was gonna say, oh, I was gonna say, yeah, I've been, I've been to Lake Powell. I was there in two thousand three, I think, and I could, you could see the the white ring even then. Uh -huh. um, so it's pretty amazing, right? Um, and so this is a bad because if water levels in Powell drop too low, it can trigger this cascade of negative impacts and effects. Um, the perhaps the most important of which is that um, the upper basin is, it means they're not fulfilling its obligation to the lower basin to deliver the agreed upon water. And so that could trigger a compact call. So the lower basin could say, hey, you're not giving us our water. We're going to impose mandatory cutbacks um, for the upper basin. And, you know, it's a little more complicated than that, but, um, <laughs> but, you know, all the politics involved, but, but you hear water managers talk about this a lot. Um, and people really want to avoid a compact call, uh, because it could be this disastrous, uh, interstate legal quagmire. And so everybody is, is trying to work to avoid that. Um, and so the Colorado River Compact 
impacts these water rights by making these oldest water rights even more valuable. Um, like some of these agriculture rights date to the 1880s, but like I mentioned, most of the front range um, cities where that's where Colorado's most of the population lives, most of those rights um, are from the earliest 20. 20th century. And so they are more vulnerable to these cutbacks in a compact call situation than um, Western slope agriculture would be. And so that makes the need for collaboration and cooperation between all these different entities so much more important. Wow. Amazing stuff. Uh, the, the other thing that I'm not sure how it relates here, but a, a demand management program. Isn't this part, am I getting this right, that this is a way to try to <laughs> avoid some type of big situation where the upper basin's not fulfilling its part to the lower basin, or maybe I'm now real, really muddling things and let you let you take it over and explain how this is one approach to, to dealing with things? Yes. Yeah. Uh, so a demand management program, Colorado is in the midst of investigating uh, what that could potentially look like. They haven't made any decisions whether to move forward or not, but they're doing this feasibility investigation uh, where we would essentially pay water users to reduce their consumption and instead leave that water in the river to send downstream to Lake Powell, um, where there's this 500-acre-foot pool set aside basically as an insurance policy against a potential compact call. Um, and so agriculture... Uh, Western slope agriculture is key to this program working since that's where most of uh, most of the water is. And so um, you would essentially be paying irrigators under a temporary voluntary program not to irrigate and to leave that that water in the river. Um, and so for the last year, uh, eight different work groups of water managers and water experts from around the state have been exploring this concept and whether it could work in Colorado. And they just released a 200-page report which details um, all of their findings and a bunch of lingering questions that they have come up with after this first year. Um, and that document is open for public comment. Um, but no decision has been made whether this program is something that Colorado should do. And it looks like the work groups are going to continue to do this investigation for another year, um, although that decision is up to the, um, the state water board. But... Um, you know, there's a lot of uh, demand management is a, a bit controversial. There's uh, some kind of mixed feelings about it. Some people are, um, especially in agriculture, people are skeptical that a program could be fair. Mm. And there was a whole work group dedicated to the subject of equity. So they're tackling questions like, how could a program make sure that certain basins or certain geographic areas wouldn't be negatively impacted by a demand management program? And then conversely, how could they make sure that a certain area wouldn't reap more of the rewards than another area because you, you know, remember you are going to get paid for your water. So um, there's a real concern about equity of impact, but also equity of opportunity. Um, but I think most, most people involved in this demand management discussion recognize the real threat posed by climate change and by the dwindling levels in Lake Powell and the threat of a compact call. And so um, they want to take some kind of action. And there is a sense of urgency to address this issue. Um, but whether specifically demand management program is the best course of action for Colorado is still um, something that they're still discussing. 
you have so many competing diverse interests here, right? With government and agriculture, environmentalists, and um, what's the what are the dynamics of that of the, all those stakeholders kind of colliding as far as competition versus collaboration, and just kind of what's that what's that dynamic like? Right. Um, well, so like I mentioned, water is treated as a private property, right? And so um, a lot of people in agriculture are, are very um, interested in maintaining that. You know, a lot of um, water users in agriculture, their their farm and their water is, that's their retirement fund. Mm. That's their, um, you know, their whole life is poured into that. And so um, that group is very um, concerned with maintaining those private property rights and ma- maintaining agriculture's control over their water. And then you have um, environmental interests and recreation interests. And they're sort of aligned in that they both want to see more water in the river. Um, So groups, uh, you know, like boating groups and environmental advocacy groups, they all want to find ways to, um, you know, increase irrigation efficiencies and and try to get more water into the river. Um, And then, but, you know, I think uh, I, I will say that there is a huge amount of collaboration in Colorado among the different water users and managers. Um, and I think most people at this point, like I mentioned, recognize, um, you know, the very real threat of climate change in a compact call. And, and they, um, they also recognize that you can get a lot more done by collaborating with each other and instead of, um, fighting each other. So, um, I think just recently, um, there have been a lot of examples of, of good collaboration between all of the these different competing interests. Mm, very interesting. The last area I wanted to ask you about with water rights is, is something that was sparked by one of your, your great articles about kind of private entities investing in water rights. Um, could you talk about that concept and the, and the reality of it and, and what's happening out there? Sure. Um, so I worked on a, a recent series that focuses on water investment in the West. Um, and that was, uh, it's called Cash Flows, How Investors Are Banking on the West's Water Scarcity. And this was a collaboration with um, KUNC in Northern Colorado and Luke Runyon, who I think has been on your program before, um, and KJZZ in Arizona and the Nevada Independent. And so all three of these stories have a couple things in common. One is the transfer of water from agriculture to city cities, like I kind of mentioned before. Um, So it's this transfer of water from rural areas to urban areas. And another is how water is treated as a commodity and how some people think the value of water should be left up to the market Hmm. to decide. um, And instead of water being treated as a public resource, a natural resource to be put to beneficial use, it's starting to be seen as a money-making venture. And uh, so in Colorado's Grand Valley, which is just west of Grand Junction. It's kind of between Grand Junction and the Utah state line. Um, There's a New York City-based hedge fund called Water Asset Management that has spent more than $16 million on 2,200 acres of irrigated farmland. And they're doing this presumably because there's money to be made on the water. And one possible path to making money could be through that demand management program, like I mentioned, um, and they could get paid to send their water to Lake Powell, um, the water that they're not using to, to grow crops. And, um, so that's what's happening in Colorado. And then in central Arizona, you have, um, these rapidly growing Phoenix 
uh, exurbs, which are looking for new sources of water from the Colorado River. And so there's this town called Queen Creek, whose population has increased over 60% since 2010. And they are looking to transfer water from farmland to these new residential developments. And the interesting part there is that this farmland is owned by an investment company, which could stand to make 20 million from the deal. Mm. And so the rural farm communities that already use some of this Colorado River water think it's a slippery slope. And they think that if and when water leaves a community, it usually ends up being bad for the community. Um, and then in northern Nevada, uh, water asset management, which is the same company that's buying land in Colorado. Um, they own this farm called Winnemucca farms that, um, they want to sell a portion of the, of the flood water. They want to capture 300,000 acre feet of flood water and store it underground and wait for someone to be interested in it, presumably cities. So they want to um, wait for the cities to come calling and that would result in water transfers out of the county. So once again, people are skeptical of this plan that could potentially transfer water away from rural agriculture communities to urban areas. Wow. So much going on there. Uh, it, it's, it's interesting. So if this, this uh, entity owns this land, the water is supposed to be used for some kind of beneficial use, right? Like that's the irrigation of crops. But so would they be allowed to stop, stop that use and sell the water downstream instead? Does that question make sense? Yeah, well, so under Colorado water law right now, um, the answer is no, okay. you have to, the value of water lies in its use. However, under a demand management program, um, that could that could change since it, it would allow for these temporary transfers. And then another thing, which, um, you know, it's probably a little bit far fetched. But some people are worried that if that, you know, WAM is now the largest shareholder in the Grand Valley Water Users Association. And so some people think that if um, they were to gain a majority control, they could sort of tinker with the bylaws and, and figure out a way to, you know, to sell this water. They could figure out a way around um, what mm. the current ru rules are. Sure. So what's the kind of uh, the public perception of what's happening with these private entities kind of buying land and then, and then having the water rights. What's the, what's the reaction? Um, so local residents seem to be pretty skeptical about what WAM is doing. Um, the Grand Valley is this rural agricultural community with, uh, generational family farms. And, and so just the fact that this is a hedge fund from New York city, uh, that fact alone sort of raises people's eyebrows. Um, and when we were reporting the story, we actually had trouble finding someone to talk to us who had sold to Wham. Uh, we did talk to some people, but they just wouldn't go on the record. And they said, um, you know, because it's such a controversial issue. And some some people had said they became sort of social outcasts. One guy said everyone in town hates him now. Um, and they can be seen as sort of selling out because they sold to this New York hedge fund. Um, and I think there's so much... Uh, skepticism about this issue because um, of this one cautionary tale you hear water managers talk about all the time in Colorado, and that's um, Crowley County. And so that's an area in eastern Colorado that used to be this thriving hub of agriculture until about the late 60s, early 70s, when they started selling their water rights to cities like Colorado Springs, Aurora, and Pueblo. And then um, when there was no longer farming in this community, the population started declining, 
Main Street became hollowed out with empty storefronts. And now Crowley County is known for its um, prison industry. And so that's essentially what's replaced agriculture. And that's now what provides jobs. And so Crowley County is sort of held up as this um, example of what can happen with uh, when agriculture communities are separated from their water. And so I think that's something that people generally don't want to see happen again. And so they're very wary of what's happening in the Grand Valley. They're very leery. Sure, sure. It just makes me think of that, you know, famous quote about whiskeys for drinking and waters for fighting, right? I mean, <laughs> sounds like it. Well, Heather, I really appreciate your time and all this information. I feel like having talked to you and then talked to Luke before, I'm starting to starting to learn a little bit more and have an understanding of, of water out west and, and all that. But thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Sure. Yeah, thanks for having me. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop. The Waterloop Podcast is brought to you by High Sierra Showerheads, the smart and stylish way to save water, energy, and money while enjoying a powerful shower. Use promo code Waterloop for 20% off at HighSierraShowerheads.com. You're in the Waterloop.